Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Today, we'll be starting a new series on foundational questions in leadership. Our conversation today will range in a couple of different directions, but we'll focus uh, primarily on the notions of leadership and management. My guest today is Dr. Scott Allen. Scott is an Associate Professor at John Carroll University, where he teaches leadership and management development. Scott earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Minnesota, his master's from Xavier, and his PhD from Antioch University. Scott has published more than 40 book chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles. Scott is the board chair and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition and has served on the board of the International Leadership Association, Association of Leadership Educators, OBTS, Teaching Society for Management Educators, and Beta Theta Pi Fraternity. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Miles. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So to just kind of get us started, we're going to uh, we're gonna, uh, move into a segment called Rapid Fire. So I'm going to ask uh, a big, a fairly silly question of Scott, and, uh, and we'll get through these pretty quickly. So, Scott, my first question for you is I know, uh, I know you love to travel with your family, so where is your favorite place that you visited? You know, last year we went on this just so, – so my wife and I have uh, twin girls who are seven and then our son is nine, and we went on this massive 24-day, uh, everyone in a one uh, Toyota Sienna minivan uh, just kind of trek across the west, and we hit Yellowstone and Devil's Tower and Mount Rushmore and Oklahoma City and St. Louis, and it was just an incredible trip. And so I think our favorite spot we spent – I think it was five nights in Moab, Utah – and mm. visiting arches and visiting canyon lands. Uh, we had an opportunity to do a little bit of climbing. I mean, it was just, I, I have just fell in love with Utah, just an incredible state. Mm. Cool, cool. Yeah, I have um, actually three of my either for, former or current students are currently living in Moab. We have a part of my really? job here is working with the outdoor leadership program. So uh, several of them are raft guides down there right now, which is, which is uh, really fun. And they seem to, they speak of Moab as a place of like almost mythical uh, significance. So. Well, it's incredible. And it was hilarious because my, my six year old daughter wanted to go climbing. And so I called the local outfit and I said, you know, I have a six year old and we just need a real simple, basic intro to climbing. And they said, sure, we can do that. And a day later, I found myself on the side of a cliff. <laughs> mm. Something it was called the ice cream parlor, and and uh, my my daughter was challenging me to to take my my skills to the next level. It was really awesome. It was a lot of fun. Wow, that's fun. So, uh, what is next on the family travel list? So we're we're thinking probably for 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 this winter, we're gonna keep our eyes on New Orleans and potentially. Uh, Houston, Texas, try and get to the Johnson Space Center. Our, our goal is to get our kids to all 50 states. So any chance we have an opportunity to kind of explore an, a new a nook and cranny of the U.S., uh, we take it. And so we, for now at least, have our eyes on New Orleans and, and Houston, which should be a lot of fun. Okay, great, great. So uh, I know you're a big movie buff. So what is your all-time favorite movie and what is the best movie you've ever seen? Wolf. So, so all-time favorite movie, all-time favorite movie. You know, I, two movies come to mind when I think of that, so I'll, I'm going to cheat. Uh, I always cry when Forrest Gump is at Jenny's grave. 
Uh, no matter mm. when I turned that movie on, I, I, I for some reason just loved that movie for kind of its simplicity and its and its optimism uh, about humanity. And and kind of on the other side, I, I, I really really loved the film Shawshank Redemption, which mm. uh, for me at least the character development in that film, and and even if you look at it through kind of a leadership lens, uh, so many of the concepts that we discuss are are embedded in that film. Uh, so those are two that really, really stand out for me. But, but I love all kinds of film. I mean, it's really a pastime that I really, truly enjoy. Watched a great one this weekend about Pele, um, which was, mm. you know, just really a lot of fun to learn a little bit more about him. Mm. So, uh, so I have a, a son. He's two, and uh, his name is oh, Forrest. Nice. Uh, not after Gump, uh, after my <laughs> grandfather. Um, yeah. It's actually it's spelled like the woods, not like forest with the two R's. But uh, sure. regardless, he uh, he is in daycare, and there is a girl in his daycare named Jenny, and they are uh, good friends. And we have a picture of the two of them from, <laughs> I don't know, like six months ago or something, just like laying on the floor staring at each other. But it's, you know, what, <laughs> That's what, great. That's awesome. What are the chances? So, <laughs> I know, uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I know that you were uh, recently able to uh, to go, to catch a fish concert. Um, I apologize; I couldn't help myself on on um, preparing for the pun there. Uh, but what is the uh, what is the best live show that you've ever been to? You know, so so yes, a, a great friend of mine from high school. We we kind of meet for the last couple of years. We've met to see a show, and you know, there were three nights last fall that we saw fish in Denver, Colorado, which. You know, I've listened to those three shows probably dozens and dozens of times while I'm writing or while I'm working, because oftentimes I'm kind of sitting in a coffee shop. So, so those three those three concerts from last fall were just uh, they just keep on giving, and I've written so much to those songs. Uh, they're they're just in, in in a really really nice way. They just kind of drive my productivity. So, I've I, I have seen hundreds of concerts, but I think those three really, really stand out for me. Um, it's just a really nice, incredible weekend of music. Mm. How about you? What's your best? Mm. That's a, you weren't expecting that, were you, for me to turn that on you? No, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, there's this, my, my initial thought went to, there's, uh, I, I've been to the Newport Folk Festival in Rhode Island a couple of times. Nice. Nice. Um, with uh, with uh, some some friends and um, and uh, I saw uh, there's this uh, this band from Austin Texas named the Oh Hellos. Uh, it's kind of this like sprawling uh, kind of crazy group. This brother and sister are sort of the the main creative forces, but they travel with like I don't know probably twelve other people or something. Uh, and I've heard the folks at NPR say before that. Um, you really know a band cares about music if there's more than like five people in the group because you know they're making absolutely no money. Exactly. And, uh, and so, anywho, um, this this band is uh, it was uh, at Newport. Uh, it was like a early in the day kind of show. I I already liked them and enjoyed their their music, but it was just uh, infectious. And I, I don't know if I've ever seen people having more fun playing music before. Awesome. I'll check was, that out. The oh, oh hellos, right? The oh hellos, yeah, yeah. Nice. It's you know, it's a small band in, in Newport for particularly for sort of folk, you know, Americana kind of artists is such a 
hallowed ground, you know, it's where Dylan plugged in and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, you get to kind of see, particularly in those early morning shows that are a little bit smaller, you get to kind of see people's dreams come true in a way, which is um, really, it was definitely happening for them. So it was really cool. Very nice. Yeah, there's been there's been several acts, Wilco and Ryan Adams in recent years that, that I really enjoy that have played Newport. I'd love to attend mm-hmm. that someday. I saw Ryan Adams at Newport actually. So Oh did you? Uh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um okay, so I know that you were once a competitive diver, so uh, I guess I wonder how did you get into that sport and you know, to prepare us for the Olympics in twenty twenty, what do you think most people don't understand about about <laughs> diving? You know, like, what are we missing on our amateur analysis? <laughs> well, I, 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 the reason I got into it is very, very simple. I was swimming laps and having no fun, and I was looking, it over the, looking over at the kids in the diving well, and they were laughing and having fun. And so I went home and I said, Mom, I want to do that, because they were enjoying themselves, and, and, and laps weren't for me, but... So that's that's the very basic reason I got into it. But, you know, the, the the friend that I just mentioned that I see shows with, you know, he was a diver in a local community. And so uh, there were several times in my life where really diving kept me on the straight and narrow in a really, really nice way. Um, you know, 33 feet up in the air is very high. And so I think there's very few people that would, that watch that platform diving and and understand the speed at which someone is hurling their body through the air. So I always just have, especially today when they're doing the synchro diving, I, I personally cannot imagine um, even doing the twists, throwing myself into twists with someone next to me twisting as well. It's hard enough to do those very, very difficult dives. But, but to have someone next to you doing that same maneuver and then try and sync those things up, you know, it's like gymnastics or anything else. It, their job is to make it look easy, but, mm-hmm. but they're doing the most difficult moves in the world. And so I just have, I have so much respect, especially for those synchro divers. Mm. Have, you so, ever, have you ever been up on the 10-meter platform? I have, yeah. 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 Not, in a, uh, not in a way, not in, not in a, <laughs> a need-to-perform kind of way. But I have, exactly. I have, uh, yeah. So, it's so what you're telling me is that your friend who you like to see fish concerts with also is yeah. a diver. There's just a lot yes. of the fish ponds are just could really keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had not made that connection, but yes, that's true. <laughs> All right, so for our last, uh, last question of the rapid fire section, I know that you collect meteorites, which is a really fascinating hobby. Could you describe your most interest, interesting meteorite? Okay, so, so yeah, it is a little bit odd when people learn that that's somewhat of a hobby of mine. But um, so there's a classification called NWA. So it's not the, not the group NWA, but it's, it's Northwest Africa. So there was this meteorite that fell, and it's called NWA 2364. So they kind of classify them. And so I, I, as I understand it, the gentleman I bought the meteorite from is in Arizona, and he bought it off of a, of a, of a gentleman in North Africa, and it was kind of intact. And when they brought it home to the United States and had it observed in a, in a laboratory in, in Arizona, they basically it was the oldest material ever found. And so, mm. so they had to redate the solar system 
as a result of kind of what they found in this material. So that's just kind of the, the mind-blowing nature, and it kind of gets into your beliefs, and it's it just there's so many fun conversations that can come from, um, you know, they, they, they redated the solar system from between like four point, well, it, they think that this thing is about 4.5 million, or I'm sorry, billion years old. And so mm. it, it, it was around, you know, quote-unquote, at the time of the birth of our solar system. And so now I don't own the piece that was that really, really, really old piece. I own just a little fragment uh, from the larger body of the meteorite. But, you know, when you think 4.5 billion years, it's just, uh, it's absolutely mind-blowing. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, I've, I've always loved space. I've always loved thinking about space. I was never great at physics. I wish I had been. But, um, you know, just when you start thinking about the, the size and scope uh, it's just an incredible thing. So that always kind of keeps me dreaming and wondering for sure. Hmm. Cool. All right, so we are going to transition into our next segment, which is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from Higher Ed Current Events and one lie, and Scott will have to parse out the lie. The theme this time <laughs> is tech controversies. Scott, are tech you controversies? ready? Tech controversies? Tech uh controversies. -huh. Okay, okay, I, I am ready. Okay. All right. So your first option is a pretty short one. It is 62% of parents of high school seniors this year reported finishing parts of their children's college applications. So that okay. is the first option, 62% okay. of parents. Uh, the next one is that the University of Texas Arlington recently unveiled plans to change their mascot to the calculators due to the generous support of the, of the university by Texas Instruments. The Progressive okay. Student Union on campus has been protesting the decision as, and I quote, a blatant act of crony capitalism. So mm, that's your next option, okay. calculators at the University of Texas Arlington. And then okay. your final option is a federal judge recently ordered Apple to pay $506 million to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. A jury previously ordered Apple to pay $234 million, but the judge more than doubled that ruling because he found Apple, con Apple continued to infringe on the patent after the ruling. The dispute involves patents on computer processor technology. So mm. your, those are your options. I am going with calculators. I think Apple's been in all kinds of little disagreements and scuffles with Samsung and others, so I could see that potentially happening. I believe about the parents. So I'm going to go with the lie of the calculators. That's my guess, I'm hoping, with my fingers crossed. All right. Well, uh, good job trusting your instincts. That is correct. <laughs> that is. That would correct. have to be a very large gift, right? <laughs> well, I do. So I do think that I. Well, I, I I do think that Texas Instruments has been very generous with the University of Texas Arlington, but I could be wrong on that. I have like a vague memory that led me to create this lie. Uh, so. Anywho, yep, that is that is like true. 62% of parents do uh, did report helping high school seniors complete their college applications, and a federal judge has ordered Apple to pay $506 million to the University of Wisconsin Madison. So, uh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't a lot. Nice. I mean, honestly, there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of fun options out there. So, uh, <laughs> it, my. My uh, my fun lie ended up being a little too obvious. I have no. Your 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 quote kind of threw me off for a little bit there. So that was a good mm -hmm. that was a good insert having the quote from students. 
Oh, good. Well, thank you. I <laughs> do what I can. All right, so we're going to transition to our next segment, which is called Getting to Know Scott. So this segment is, is designed to help listeners understand Scott as a person, as a professional. Uh, so, Scott, how did you get involved in leadership work? So, so the first time I ever, uh, ever led anything was in college. I, I joined a fraternity at the University of Minnesota, and, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was an organization with, with quite a few troubles. And so uh, whether that be hazing, um, poor academics, you know, just uh, there was a lot that needed to be changed, and the culture was not a positive one. And, and so the first time I ever took on a leadership role was in that organization, and me and a few guys really, really wanted to see us kind of take that organization to the next level. But, of course, I'd never read anything about leadership. I didn't, I, I didn't know really from an academic standpoint anything about the topic. But, but I did know that we had an opportunity to take our organization to the next level. And so that's really, really important in kind of know, knowing who I am was that in high school I hadn't served in leadership roles. It, it really was college for me. So that's why it has such an important, and that's why I love what I do, because I think it's such a transformational period of time for people, in, at least in my growth and development, and I, and I believe that to be true for others. And so... Uh, my 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 second job out of school was I worked for Beta Theta Pi, and I was a consultant traveling to different chapters. And our our objective was to help help our men live the values of the organization, which, as you know, uh, can be a very very challenging endeavor when you're working with 18 to 22 year old males. It's um, there's just a lot out there, and living one's values is is. Is, is difficult work. It really truly is, especially on a college campus at times. And so in the process, I, I came across a great mentor. One of my greatest gifts in life has been having great mentors at very, very key points in my development and growth. And so there was a gentleman named Bob Cottrell who he, he, he said, hey, let's meet in the morning, 7 a.m., and we're going to read this book called The Leadership Challenge. So that's really the first time I began to understand that leadership was something people thought about, and, and all of these connections were going off in my head as I read this book, because in many ways it had been what we lived at, at the University of Minnesota for those four years. And, and by no means did I leave that a perfect organization, but there were a lot of struggles and we challenged to, to take it to the next level at least. And so that's really, really where it started for me. And then, of course, working with uh, Greek affairs professionals throughout the United States over the seven years that I worked for Beta Theta Pi, I just gained an incredible appreciation for the student affairs side of the house because the work there and the growth that's happening there is just, it's incredible. It's an incredible part of the, of the academic and the collegiate experience. So that's a book club. Oddly enough, you know, a, a book club is kind of where it started for me. Okay, great. So uh, smooth transition from there then. What is the best book about leadership? So, you know, I think for me, and my, my specific area of passion is, is leadership education or leadership development, um, it's two books that really have nothing to do with leadership per se. So uh, two women, and I can send you these links, two women 
uh, Miriam and Caffarella wrote a book called Learning in Adulthood, which really transformed how I think about education. And, and then another book called Peak, which is by a gentleman named Kay Anders Erickson, who, who is a, who's a primary scholar in the expertise literature. Uh, these individuals are very, very interested in how someone becomes an expert. So kind of this puzzle of how would you develop or how would you create an expert leader uh, cannot even be done. Uh, what does that look like? Um, it's just something that has really, really a puzzle that's fascinated me forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, if you want strictly just a leadership book, I think uh, High Fitz and Linsky, Leadership on the Line, really helped me think about the work of leaders. Uh, so much of the writing is about you know, the attributes of leaders, but I think Heifetz and Linsky really, really challenged how I thought about leadership. And, and then I went to a course with them at the Kennedy School. It was a, a seven-day, really intense experience on their teaching methodology, case in point. And so those, you know, Heifetz and Linsky, that, that book, but then these other two texts have really, really expanded my thinking about the topic, which, which I feel so very fortunate because uh, like many of the people that you have on the podcast, I mean, it's a puzzle and it's a topic that just absolutely fascinates me. How do we, how do we help people? How do we better prepare young men and women uh, to lead when serving in formal or informal leadership roles? It's, it's a fun puzzle. Yeah. Okay, great. So my last question in this section is, what opportunities do you see on the horizon for student leadership practitioners? So, so the, one, the one book, Learning in Adulthood, uh, they do a wonderful job of kind of parsing out these uh, five orientations of learning. So you have kind of cognitivism, which is which would almost be like leadership studies, knowing, knowing the history and the stuff about leadership. And then they discuss behaviorism, which is the skills necessary um, in any domain. If, if we're talking cooking, it'd be the you know, knife skills, so to speak. But there's behaviorism, which is another orientation. And then they discuss humanism, which is another orientation, which is all about identity work and values and motivations and self-awareness. And then another orientation are, is Albert Bender is kind of social learning. So do you have role models, right? And the fifth is called constructivism, which is all about experience and then making meaning from that experience. And so I think so much of the leadership education that's occurring right now is people sitting in a room talking about leadership. And it's very, it's very there's a, a, a large humanistic bent and some people would disagree with me on this. Um, at times, there's a very constructivist bent, like an experiential bent, but oftentimes not kind of juxtaposed to that cognitivism of really knowing this stuff. So I think we need to balance, if we really want to create a leader, a really well-rounded leader, it'd be like creating a surgeon. You need a man or a woman who knows their stuff, has the skill, is self-aware, has had incredible mentors and has had experience and really, really made meaning of that experience and learned from those experiences. And so I think we have to focus on all five orientations in our, in our planning, in our preparation, and I think, because I think all five are important. 
But if we think any one of those five orientations is going to create a great surgeon, we may be limited. Uh, because you wouldn't necessarily want a surgeon to work on you who's never done the surgery before. You know, I'm going to go down the road and find the person who's done it 400 times a year. So, you know, I think we need to up our game when it comes to how we're thinking about the curriculum we're designing and then how we measure progress and growth. In a business school, which is where I teach, there's a huge bent to cognitivism, which is just knowing the stuff. Well, you could have a chef, and, and he or she, you know, you aren't going to have a chef by just teaching someone all of the history of French cuisine. Uh, you might have a food critic at that point, but you aren't going to have a chef. And so that, for me, is the next level, really, really paying attention to that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, for our next segment, uh, which is called Six Big Leadership Questions, uh, we are going to really focus for these first four questions on our conversation about leadership and management. Uh, so Great. the challenge before Scott here is to adequately summarize a discussion that has filled many, many books in four questions. Uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, <laughs> shift, to, shift to a couple other topics for our, for our, last, four, uh, for our last two questions of the, of the segment here. So Sure. Scott, let, let's start here. What is your summary of leadership? So for me, I, I love that Tony Middlebrooks, a colleague of mine at the University of Delaware, summarizes leadership as uh, the process of influencing others towards a common vision. Uh, so the process of influencing others toward a common vision. And so that, that definition has always just kind of stuck with me because there's a lot in that definition when I ask students to kind of unpack that. And, and then there's some things that aren't in that definition, which I think are just as important to really, really explore. But for me, that's, that's how, I think about, how I think about leadership. It's, uh, process is a key word. Influence is a key word. Uh, working with others is key. And then are we working toward, you know, ideally, a better future and, and somewhere aspirationally good? And, and do others share in that vision? All righty. So here is my natural follow-up, you know, given the conversation that we're having. Yeah. What, yeah. what is your summary of management? So, so for me, management is all about putting that vision into reality. So the, the management textbooks oftentimes will, you know, so, so the management textbooks will say management is about uh, planning, controlling, and, and things of that, putting systems in place to really, really facilitate the vision becoming a reality. And so I think that in many, many ways, that's what it's all about. You know, you have a presidential candidate who is, who is running for the highest office, and he or she has a vision, and in many ways, that's what they're selling in those two years that they're a candidate. Uh, their legacy will be, you know, kind of built upon were they able to facilitate that vision into a reality, a tangible new existence where we are better off because of it. And, and we've seen some presidents do an incredible job of that, and we've seen other presidents not do a great job of that. And we've seen CEOs um, have an incredible, some CEOs have an incredible vision. And can they marry that with, with the reality of where we're going? So planning, organizing, controlling are oftentimes 
some key terms that you see in some of the management definitions. Um, so that's how I think about management. Two sides of the same coin. You need both, right? And there's a really incredible quote by a futurist named Joel Barclay. Let's see if I can get it correctly. But it's, it's vision without action is just a dream. Action without vision just passes time. Action with vision changes the world. And so for me, you need both. And it's kind of an interesting thing. We could get into a really fun conversation about um, we're developing leaders all over, and leadership, 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 that's all we hear, but we also need people who can kind of facilitate putting some of these visions into reality and putting the systems in place to make sure that that, that occurs too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my follow-up there then is, uh, how are the concepts of leadership and management distinct? Yeah, well, well, I think for me, they're, they're both essential. And I think we tend to hold leadership, you know, no college, edu- no college application. It's kind of like followership when you get into that conversation sometimes. No, no college is asking for a time that you were a great follower. Or, or no college is asking on, on their applications for a time that you really manage something into reality. It's just it, for some reason it's less sexy. But, but they're distinct in that one is charting the course of where we can go and aligning others with that. The other is now about doing the work and ensuring that we move the needle and get to that better place. So there's a gentleman named Henry Mintzberg who wrote a great book called Managers, Not MBAs. He's a professor in Canada. And, and you know, he, he says that they're two sides of the same coin. That's how he kind of – and you have some people that think, no, they're two totally different things. You know, some of the business – and this is why in business schools I think sometimes leadership is, is somewhat less than. I wrote a kind of an interesting paper with Matt Sochik from the University of Florida a few years ago, and we were kind of exploring, you know, leadership through a business school lens. Well, in the business literature, managers plan, lead, organize, and control. So in, in, in much of the management literature, you know, leadership is a subset of what managers do. So you kind of have that paradigm or that perspective. And then you have, you know, the perspective that no you know, they're both, they're separate, they're distinct, and they're equally as important. So it's a really fun conversation. But bottom line, you need both. And we need people in organizations who can do both. So the last question here, and I guess the probably the, the trickiest one is, do you believe that the concepts of leader, leadership and management are in contradiction to one another? No, no, I think, I think for, for me personally, they're complementary, that, that they are, that we, that we need both, that they are both critical, they're both important, and I mean, I guess in some ways it would depend on your objectives, uh, but we've seen plenty of organizations, we could, I did my dissertation at Kodak, and they had all kinds of systems and policies and procedures and all of that in, this, in place beautifully. But they didn't kind of act like IBM did and live into a new reality once paper no longer became the core product, right? 
And, mm-hmm. and so they struggled because they lacked potentially the vision of where to go next. Now, we've seen IBM, which was a huge behemoth, lots of policies, procedures, systems, structures, really that kind of locked it down in many ways. You know, they shed their laptop division, which was a major decision, and they've kind of put their money on artificial intelligence, and they're moving into kind of a new space, IBM Watson Health and, and some of these different entities. And so, you know, I think you can have all the systems in place that you want, but at some point the context is going to shift and they're going to be not, they aren't going to be relevant any longer. Now, I also think, and we've had presidents and you've had CEOs who had incredible visions, but they couldn't manage those into reality. So for me, they're complementary. We need both. And, and in a lot of the work that I do, we talk about both because they're critical. I, I don't believe that just creating leaders who just have visions and inspire others, that, that's one part of the equation, but it's not both. I mean, what do you think? Do you agree? Disagree? No, no. I think, I, I think, I think, that, all, I think that, that all seems right. I, you know, I mean, it's, uh, these aren't easy questions. You know, they're short questions, but they're not, <laughs> but they're not, uh, they're yeah. not easy questions. So, um, yeah. but if you want, if you want someone, like, I think sometimes entrepreneurs can struggle with this. That, you know, they have the idea, they have the vision, but you know, very few of them also then also have the skills to actually run the company, build the business, and that's why oftentimes you know we see people brought in who have skill in that domain. Now that can also squelch creativity. So it's this incredible balance. It's this incredible balance because I think sometimes the systems and policies and procedures can actually squelch creativity and kill, but I think sometimes the vision without some of that other half can fail just as easily. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, it gets to the idea that the skills required to do one thing are not necessarily the skills that, you know, like we have these, and this is true in student affairs as well, we have these incentive structures that, that, tie, that tie, you know, finances to, um, to management, whereas, you know, the field is not necessarily the skills that are related to being a good student affairs practitioner aren't necessarily yeah. the same skills that uh, that one needs to be a manager, but the you know the incentive structure is in place to push people towards management. Um, yeah. So I know that like HR here at GW is trying to come up with sort of a creative solution to provide uh, incentives for folks to stay in you know sort of frontline content area contribution way uh, contribution roles and be able to you know financially improve folks a lot in that way without shifting over to a management type position. Uh, but most yeah. of the time those lines get very blurred. So. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I think when I, when I have this conversation with students, especially middle managers, you know, um, the organization wants both. They want you to have a team that is thriving, that's vibrant, that's excited, that's energized, and that is moving and believes in what they're doing. And you also have to get all of your stuff done. They want the, the, the budget on, on time and, and in the black. They want the time cards and, and all of the, the management-oriented components taken care of as well. And I think in class also we talk about how probably each one of us defaults to one or the other 
you know, I, I kind of default to working with others, energizing, engaging, thinking about where we could go, you know, dreaming and, and mobilizing. And other people may default to, you know, hey, tell me where we're going and how I can help, you know, get us there. But the engaging and the mobilizing isn't necessarily where their energy is. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, we'll we'll shift from the uh, from the impossible challenge that I set set before you there related to leadership <laughs> and management. Uh, and for our fifth big leadership question, uh, I know that you are passionate about the collegiate leadership competition. I think it's a really fascinating endeavor. So, can you provide a summary for for folks who are listening of that project and what y'all are hoping regarding outcomes? Great, great. So. So remember the five orientations I talked about before. So uh, what we're trying to do is create a practice field for leadership. Bottom line, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, So much of leadership is done sitting in a room talking about it. Or like what I experienced, I had a lot of experience, kind of that constructivist domain. I had a lot of experiences in the, the fraternity, but they weren't connected to any knowledge any mentors. They weren't connected to really any self-awareness. They were just experiences. So I couldn't even make meaning of them in a coherent way. So how do we create a practice field and an environment where people can receive coaching? So, so we're really focusing on, do they know some content about leadership? Are they actually truly building skill? And are they being coached to build skill? And when I say building skill, you know, negotiating. Uh, having a difficult conversation, delivering a presentation, uh, using a problem-solving model to help inform your work. So we're, we're really trying to build skill. Where because we're having kind of an experience here, and we're using the competition only as a reason, uh, an excuse for students to practice. I mean, why do people practice? Well, they practice to perform if it's in the arts oftentimes, or they practice to compete. So the competition is simply a means by which we kind of get students to practice leadership. And so we're really trying to build out all five of those orientations and build a curriculum and an experience where the students are receiving opportunities to practice, opportunities for real-time feedback and coaching from a professional, and then we're conducting research on all of this so that we're sure and, and, if, and, and we are really, really interested in being able to really display and show that we're moving the needle on these students. If you think about those five orientations again, the easiest one to measure is, is cognitivism. Do you know the stuff? And that's what business schools oftentimes do. They give you a test and you regurgitate the information. And, but, that, but that is important. That's really, really important. Skill building, you kind of measure through a skill sheet, like can you do CPR? Or if it's a black belt kind of test or a belt test in karate, we're going to have a skill sheet and we're going to have an expert kind of judge your performance. But when you get into humanism, you know, that's, psychologists have been kind of fumbling around with how do we, how do we show growth in someone's identity, uh, in someone's awareness. That's a really that's a very qualitative, interesting, challenging place to kind of quantify results. So CLC, how do we create a practice field? How do we provide our students with an opportunity to get some real-time coaching and feedback? And then what we hear from students who compete, they love representing their school. They love the sense of team that has been built. 
and they get really, really good, especially on the day of competition, because we're in five different regions. They get really, really good at providing others, their, their other team members, with coaching and feedback, which is really, really a lot of fun to see. So it's been a fun project. It's been a really, really fun project. But, you know, like anything else, we're exploring, we're experimenting, and that's really kind of what it comes down to. Okay. Great. So our last question, I think I would be remiss if I let you out of this conversation without, without, with at least, uh, without at least one question about emotionally intelligent leadership. So uh, what sort of response have you seen from students and student le- leadership practitioners to that work? Sure, sure. So, so it's interesting. It's really interesting. So I was at NYU last Wednesday. I was there, uh, you know, I happened to be in town for a concert, and so I, I met with a, a friend of mine on campus, and, and she said, oh, we've been using the inventory. And so that's, that's my first reaction is that we know because of the sales a lot of people are using it, but we often don't necessarily even know that people are using it. And so hmm. uh, I'm always kind of taken aback because, you know, Bethany said, oh, we're using the inventory, and it's great. And, and and I thought, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> I had no clue that, that that was going on. Or I'll receive a, a random uh, picture from a good friend of mine at Detroit Mercy sent me a photo last year that just, you know, had the students holding up the book. And, and so it's been, you know, that whole process was a lot of fun. And that whole process, when, when Marcy and I wrote the original version, it really, in 2007, we were sitting in a coffee shop and and we were talking about how each of us had had incredibly powerful learning experiences as student leaders, her at William and Mary and, and me at the University of Minnesota, and, but, but we couldn't think of a, of a text that was just kind of couched in their space. Uh, obviously, Susan mm-hmm. had done her work, which was incredible, and our goal was to kind of take their thoughts around emotional intelligence and then... Um, you know, how do we help kind of create a piece of integrative scholarship that, um, you know, helps tell the story from, from a student's perspective. So that's been probably the coolest part is when I come across a student who says, you know, I love this because it was a quick read. It was pretty straightforward, but it was couched in our setting, in our context. It wasn't, you know, like, for instance, the leadership challenge when it originally came out it was all business examples, and I didn't have any frame for that content. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been really cool. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was the last uh, one of our questions there. So thanks, everyone, for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Scott Allen. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Allen, E-L-I, uh, or get a ton of great information from the Emotionally Intelligent Leadership Facebook page. Scott, final question. If you had one bit of advice to give to an aspiring student leadership practitioner, what would you pass along? I have learned so much from exploring domains outside of leadership. So again, uh, whether it's adult learning theory, whether it's the expertise literature, whether it's sociology, anthropology, that's one of the great challenges of our work is that we have to be kind of skilled and aware of so many different domains of content, psychology, biology. So I, I, would, I, I love Ernest Boyer's notion of the scholarship of integration. And there's a lot of cool work being done in different domains and how can those come in and help inform our dialogue around leadership or leadership education so that we can learn from those different domains. That's, 
that's what I love thinking about, and that's what I would encourage someone getting into the field or a young person in the field to really explore. It's good to know what we know here in leadership, but what do people know elsewhere? Systems theory that could really, really help take our, our field to the next level. Okay. Well, we will be following soon with several other great guests in the Foundational Leadership Questions series. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this conversation about leadership and management. And you can get more information about the Student Leadership Program's knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SALead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter, and I am at, at Miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S, underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-C. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thanks, Miles. Thanks for all you're doing. Yeah, yeah, of course.